0: Hello and welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Issue by Issue, a DC Comics completionist podcast. The only podcast that I know about that is going through every issue of DC Comics, starting from in this show, Crisis on Infinite Earths, number one, because this is Issue by Issue Crisis. I am your host, as always, Nick Byers, and uh, I feel like I just talked to you all, uh, you all Crisis fans, uh, because I did on Monday. I hope everybody enjoyed the sort of double-barrel Monday, uh, the first day of the year. Started off on a good foot and to make up for the Christmas week where I didn't put out any podcasts. But the week's not over yet. It's Friday. It's Crisis Day. we got to have a crisis episode, so we're going to have a crisis episode. And in this crisis episode, we're going to be covering Action Comics number 566, all Star Squadron number forty four, and America versus the Justice Society number four. It's a very golden age heavy episode of this crisis episode, uh, which is not typically the case, and that's kind of fun. Uh, and and the the final issue, America versus the Justice Society, pretty good. Uh, it's part of a mini series that I read all of in preparation, uh, and it's it's pretty good. It really it really paints a picture of, of all the stuff that the, the Golden Age Justice Society got up to. So, and also, it kind of also sets the scene for next week on Monday when we get uh, the first issue of a very uh, important series of comic books. Uh, but I'm going to leave that until Monday. A little, uh, little teaser. But as always, let's set the scene with some real-world history around the time that these issues were coming out. We've got a new... It's a new... Wednesday or whenever if it's if it was still Wednesday back then if new comic book day was Wednesdays it's a new Wednesday it's January 24th 1985 Uh, we've been in January 17th 1985 for a couple few episodes so now we've got some new history Uh, January 21st Ronald Reagan is uh, privately sworn in for a second term as president of the United States I'm not a big fan of Reagan I'll just leave it at that uh, January 23rd, Britain's House of Lords uh, debate is first televised, televised to the British people for the first time, where you can watch the British House of Lords discuss legislation, legislating and bills and stuff like that. I don't know how the British Parliament system works, but in America, we have C-SPAN, which does basically the same thing, televising the proceedings of the House and the Senate, and uh, the various committees and stuff like that. Uh, it's a very it's a very good way to get people, or have some transparency, I should say, in in the way that government is run. I think it's really cool. Uh, and January 24th, right as these issues were being put on shelves, uh, the 15th Space Shuttle, 51-C, Mission Discovery 3 was launched. And this flight, as all of them, have importance, but this one has a very specific importance to... Uh, the NASA program, as it was the first uh, flight dedicated to the U.S. Department of Defense. And because of that, a lot of information about the flight is classified. So we don't know what it did up there. Uh, Presume, maybe possibly defense satellites, who knows. Uh, But that was, that's pretty cool. Uh, The, the, the space shuttle Discovery uh, going up for its 15th flight on this day. So that's cool. But that's, that's what was happening uh, when these comics were getting on shelves. So let's get into the issues. Uh, and we're going to be starting with Action Comics number 566. Obviously, if you're fans of the show, you know all about Action Comics, or just fans of DC, obviously. But Action Comics has been a long mainstay, as you can tell by the very high number, in the DC Comics universe. This one was released, as I said, on January 24th, 1985, with a cover date of April 1985. Uh, It has a debut of the podcast, but it's a very weird debut. It is the debut of Captain Strong, who is a character in DC Comics who appeared about five times between 1973 and 1985. This will be his final appearance until 2003. And he is basically a parody of Popeye. His name is uh, Captain Horatio Strong. He is dressed very similar to Popeye. He has one of his eyes as sort of like squinted clothes like Popeye. He has a a girlfriend uh, or wife at this point in time named Olivia Tallow, um, which is a play on olive oil. And uh, um, yeah, so he, he takes part in this issue. And like I said, it's his last appearance until May 2003. And then weirdly, he also appears... In Harley Quinn, Volume 2, number 17 through 19, and then also Harley Quinn, Volume 3, number 41. So not a serious character in DC Comics history, but uh, certainly a character, uh, because otherwise we wouldn't be talking about him. So moving on, let's talk about the behind-the-scenes, the the production side of this issue of Action Comics. It has two stories in it. The second story we're just mostly going to summarize because it's one of those... Not really valuable at all stories, Um, just like in Superman, the Superman issue we covered a couple episodes back, that second story was just about Superman like out being at a contest or whatever, and this one is also very similar to that, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time going beat by beat through it because it's not important. But story one uh, was written by Craig Boldman, penciled by Ron Randall, inked by Carl Kessel, lettered by Ben Oda, and colored by Eugene D'Angelo. And story two was written by Mindy Newell, penciled by Howard Bender, inked by Robert Oxner, lettered by Milton Snappen, and colored by Eugene D'Angelo. So let's get into the issue. And as always, let's start with the cover. It has Superman and Captain Strong on a tropical beach... Uh, Captain Strong standing in the water, and Superman is flying at him, trying to punch him, which is uh, weird because Captain Strong is not a bad guy. He's not a villain. He's not even a hero. He's just a guy. Oh, I should say, he's a guy who, when he eats this plant called Sancha, I believe, uh, yes, S A U N. N-C-H-A. So not spinach, Sancha. And Sancha is a alien sort of plant. Um, And so when he eats it, he gets massive strength. uh, But he also gets a sort of like ego about him. So it's weird that Superman is is punching this man because they are not enemies. But you can see behind Superman a person in a purple hooded cloak you can't really see all of their face and they are shooting a sort of yellow ray at superman uh, that is kind of enveloping him uh, or outlining him so you can tell that he's under the power of this person and captain strong is saying on the on the cover which you don't see a lot anymore you don't see a lot of speech bubbles on covers anymore but uh, captain strong says the heck with with that, I'm going to say, you made a bad mistake conjuring up this swab to fight me, witchy. Because if there's one guy that can lick him, it's Captain Strong. So, so yeah, let's get into it. Uh, Superman co-starring Captain Strong is, is what's on the next page. And we see along the left-hand side, the sort of cast of characters. We've got Lois Lane, we've got Clark Kent. We've got Olivia Strong. They're married now, so she's no longer Olivia Tallow. We've got J. Wellington Jones, who is just a, a rich guy. He's not important. Uh, and we've got the old lady of the sea, who is the person in purple. So so that's, that's good to know. Oh, and sorry, and then we have a... Uh, in video game parlance, it looks like a character that you haven't unlocked yet. Um, he's got a question mark over your face, and it says the mysterious scoundrel. So... Uh, And then there's a little blurb uh, leading into the title of the issue where it says, An island paradise, an antique sailing vessel, a terrifying sea monster, an ancient legend come to life. These elements and more come together to turn a carefree vacation cruise into an ordeal which for the man of steel and the mighty mariner could cause traumas in the Bahamas. Trauma in the Bahamas. Traumas in the Bahamas. That's good. It's a good title. So we we come in media res of Lois and Clark. I'm not aware whether or not they're in a relationship at this point, because I don't know why they'd be going on this trip together if they weren't. I guess they're friends and you can go on vacations with your friends. So that's true, Nick. Um, You can go on vacation with your friends. I do it all the time. That's true. So they could just be friends. Um, But I guess Jimmy, Jimmy doesn't get to go with. He just gets to drive them to the airport because we see him uh, driving them to the airport. And uh, Jimmy is sort of like, oh, man, you guys are so lucky. You know, only you and Lois could get a telegram from an old sailor friend inviting you to a free pleasure cruise of the Bahamas. Uh, and, And Clark's like, yeah, yeah, Captain Strong is unpredictable. And he says and then he reminisces about the last time that he met Captain Strong in Captain Strong's debut Action Comics number 421, uh, where, you know, they they do they do end up fighting because Captain Strong sort of loses self-control when he eats too much Sancha. Like I said, he gets an ego. He thinks he's like the toughest guy around. And so he does fight Superman in that issue, but he's not a bad guy. Uh, their flight lands, and their taxi drops them off at the uh, harbor on the island of Nassau, which is in the Bahamas. And we see the ship that they're going to be riding on. It's called the Fantasia, and it is a it is a four-masted uh, sailing ship. Uh, looks to be about, I'd say, maybe maybe 20 guns, if we're thinking in... in um, uh, sailing ship sort of size it can hold 20 guns looks like it has 20 gun barrels or portholes I suppose now I doubt they still have gun barrels on this uh, and Lois and Clark see uh, a man that that uh, they recognize and it's J. Wellington Jones he, his father Captain Wind Jones purchased the Fantasia in 1950 so he has inherited it they go on board, and they meet up with Captain Strong and his wife, Olivia. And they're talking to them, and Captain Strong is talking about he knows a few secrets about the ship, and it could lead them to a very newsworthy happening. So that's kind of why he wants Clark and Lois there uh, for the news. So they set sail, and Lois is talking to the Jones guy talking about how the ship is great and was restored beautifully it's like all right rich guy and uh, meanwhile Clark is getting ready to I mean he's getting unpacked in his room and he realizes he can't wear his Superman costume underneath the clothes that he's wearing because he's wearing a sort of Bermuda shorts and a flowery floral shirt, button-down shirt. And as we know, Superman doesn't wear shorts and t-shirts yet. Um, He wears a full-body suit, so that would kind of stick out. So he can't wear it. So he goes up on deck without it. And and they're talking. They meet up again with Captain Strong and his wife, and they uh, ask... Captain Strong of Feast still indulges in Sancha and his wife says, no, I made him give up that awful habit when I found out what a terrible show-off it turns him into. Um, so he no, he doesn't eat Sancha anymore, doesn't have any Sancha on his person, so that's um, troubling. Nearby on an island, uh, one of the small islands in the chain of the Bahamas, uh, we see a hut and from inside we see a shadowy figure looking out of binoculars and the witch uh, that is on the cover in the background doing something in uh, a cauldron of some kind. Um, and through the binoculars, this person can see the fantasia, and he says, how'd that tub find its way back to the open sea? So he knows he knows the fantasia. Um, and he asks the witch to kind of do something with her magical abilities to stop it. And in doing so, the uh, the witch uh, awakens and controls a giant stingray. And when I say giant stingray, I mean gigantic, uh, as big as the ship. Um, up on deck of the ship, we see Clark, and he's talking to Lois, and he's telling her that they are approaching the the island of Andros, and that he's going to. Uh, the other side to get a closer look and Lois is just basking in the sunlight. She's just having a great time. She's got her swimsuit on. She's just getting a tan enjoying the sea breeze. She's like, yeah, have fun. So uh, as this is happening, the giant stingray uh, the size of this ship jumps out of the ocean and Clark has to think fast because he can't just fight it because he doesn't have a Superman costume. Uh, but he lets a wave take him overboard into the ocean, and he punches the uh, stingray underwater, knocking it out, and he looks up and sees that Captain Strong has seen him do this. So Clark is either got to reveal to himself that he's Superman or do something about this, and so he, uh, in, in his own words, an invisible super speed trip to the galley, uh, he grabs a bunch of cans of spinach, and flies back into the water faster than the eye can see. And he flies up, just normal, onto the deck. And and Captain Strong says, "Clark, you saved us, and now you're flying out of the water like Superman." And back on deck, you know, Clark explains, "Like I can't imagine why I was doing that. I seem to have the strength of twenty men. In my panic, I knocked that monster out." And we see Clark, and he's standing, and he's dripping on the deck, and he's also covered in this sort of green plant. And it's the spinach that he got from the galley. Um, and Captain Strong asks him, Listen, Kent, that seaweed, what covers you? Did you swallow uh, any of it below? And Clark says, I, I guess. Why? And uh, Captain Strong says, Well, it doesn't look like what I remember, but this has got to be Sancha. That's what made you so strong. Um, he says, when this stuff wears off, you're going to be uh, weak as a jellyfish, so you better go sleep it off. So Clark goes to his his cabin to sort of, quote-unquote, sleep off the Sancha uh, hangover. So while that's happening, Captain Strong gathers up all of the, quote-unquote, Sancha and, uh, you know, takes it and eats some of it. And then he wants to get the ship to safe waters as fast as possible in the fastest way he knows how. So he jumps into the water and grabs onto the back of the boat and begins pushing the boat through the water, you know, kicking. You know, like when you're on a raft or something like that, you're in the water with your hands on the raft and you're kicking to propel the raft forward. He's doing that with the ship, and it's working. But then we see below the ship is Superman. Clark has a- was able to put on his Superman costume now. And Superman is underneath grabbing onto the boat and moving it through the water uh, to make it seem like the Sancha is actually working. So he can maintain his secret identity. Um, so we then hear about what secrets Captain Strong knows about this ship. And he has the diary of Wynne Jones, uh, the, the Jones that's on the ship's father. And he knows from the journal that they found the Fountain of Youth. The people on board this ship, they found the Fountain of Youth. So that's why Captain Strong wanted to be on board, because he wants to find it. Because apparently there is a a clue hidden to where the Fountain of Youth is somewhere in the ship. Uh, Somewhere on the ship is a clue to where it's at. And while Captain Strong is explaining this, Superman's been watching from high up above, where no one can see him, too far up above, but he's been using his vision, his supervision, to see clearly and hear clearly what's been going on down below. And while Captain Strong is explaining this, he sees... uh, Superman sees Captain Strong take something out of the journal and, like, palm it to hide it from people. Uh, But Superman's vision catches it, and it is a photo... Uh, That's at least 30 years old, and the man on the left is Captain Wynn Jones, and on the right is a man that looks exactly, and I mean exactly, like Captain Strong, looking exactly as he does today. So obviously, Wynn Jones is dead, and he looks like a young man 30 years, younger than the last time anyone saw him, but the person who looks like Captain Jones, Captain Strong, looks exactly like Captain Strong does, so... Hmm, fountain of youth, something, 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 connection, no aging. It's it's tricky. Uh, When suddenly a giant hurricane springs up out of nowhere, right in the path of the ship, and Captain Strong eats some quote unquote Sancha, and he's going to do a trick that he's seen Superman do, which is jump into the hurricane and go the opposite direction that it's doing to sort of stop its spin which would take all of its power and make it no longer around anymore so superman you know uses his super breath to blow captain strong up there to make it seem like he can do that and then down below uh captain strong superman is doing the thing of going the opposite direction of the of the hurricane uh, to stop it, and so then the hurricane stops, Strong falls into the into the ocean, and is helped back onto the boat, and he's looking like he just went through a spin cycle in a washing machine. And Captain Strong says, I tells you one thing, though, that Twisker, Twister, was just like what finished Captain Wynn. They's someone supernatural with a chuh uh, who don't want us to find that fountain, which means we is gonna find that fountain. We then cut to the hut on an island, a Baham 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 Bahamian Baham- Baham- Bahamian, an island in the Bahamas. It's the island that was in the Bahamas that we already seen, <sighs> and the shadowy figure is swearing. And he says, well, feed me to the sharkies, them build build rats is still afloat. Witchy, your magic spells ain't got what they used to. And the witch says, don't worry, sailor boy, I'll have plenty of surprises for them if they get this far. Uh, We then cut to the next morning on the sun deck of the Fantasia, where people are asking, like Lois is asking Captain Strong if he had any f- luck finding Captain Wind's clue to the fountain's location. And Captain Strong says no. And he feels like he's ter- turned this schooner upside down. And Lois gives him some, some advice. She says, as a reporter, I've learned that it's often easy to overlook the obvious. And Jones, the, the living Jones, says obvious uh, a map perchance?" And Captain Strong says map. There's a map painted right on this fancy deck table. And uh, this entire time this table's been there, but it's always been piled with plates and food and stuff like that. And so Captain Strong just sweeps all the food off the table and says, look, there's an imprint of the captain's monogram ring mashed into the grain of the wood alongside an X scratched into a spot on Andros Island. And it's like, Andros Island? Well, we just we've been by there. We were just by there. And Superman is thinking, Andros, it figures, it's very large, mostly uninhabited, and the strange events began when we approached it. And I did my research, and Andros Island is a real island in the, you know, 700 plus Bahamian island chain. Uh, it's bigger than all of the rest combined. Uh, it's very big. When you see it on a map, the first island you see is... Andros, because it's that much bigger than all the rest. But to say that it's uninhabited is probably unfair. It's got a population total of, of 7,780 uh, in 2022. That could, of course, have changed since 1985. It could have not been inhabited then, or less populated, Uh, more sparsely inhabited than it than it is now but to say it's uninhabited i guess he says mostly uninhabited but that makes it seem like there's like 10 people on there or 100 people on there and the rest of the island isn't uh inhabited but andros island so captain strong has some of the men uh, lower a dinghy a lifeboat basically uh so they can make their way to andros island And at this time, Clark has put back on his Clark Kent clothes and come out of his cabin uh, because he knows that they're going to have to get off the ship. And uh, Captain Strong wants a a rowboat rather than a motorized uh, launch because he's got Sauncha power, so he'll be able to basically move the oars so fast that they fly. And the way that this happens is that Clark grabs onto the boat while sitting in it, and uses his flight to fly the boat to the island. Uh, so they make the, they make landfall on the island, and they're going through the underbrush. Uh, Captain Strong splits off from the rest of the group because he feels very you know full of himself at this moment with all of his Sancha power, and so it's one. It's a group of one and a group of four. Uh, so that's that's even. That's even pairs. So the group of four is making its way through the forest when they come upon the hut that we've seen. Uh, sitting next to a natural spring, when suddenly we see Olivia's face and she like screams in terror and then faints. And Clark catches her and says she's fainted. And we then see a gun coming into the panel pointed at all four of them. You think, oh, she she fainted because of the gun, but then we see the person holding the gun, and it is a person who looks exactly like Captain Strong. Except he is wearing a different shirt. And his his pants have a patch at the knee. And uh, Clark's like, strong! And this man is like, y- ye knows m- me name, alright? Ye knows too. And then he swears, bleepin' much. Fat load of good, it'll do ye. We then see the witch tying up this group of four and uh, this person, this strong lookalike says, ye found what ye came for, this is the blarsted fountain, oh youth but it belongs to me and witchy here, and uh, the witch is telling him to put that silly gun down it ain't worked in years um, she's holding a sort of cup, and she says I have better ways of dealing with trespassers uh, and there's a sort of scary looking liquid inside when Clark uses a just like a split second use of heat vision on it, and it starts to like bubble and, and start to kind of explode a bit. Uh, and so, this strong lookalike grabs it and says, uh, you're, you're those bleeping magical potions of yours are going to kill us all. I'll fix it. And he throws it into the spring. And she says, no, not in the fountain, you fool. That potion could destroy its enchantment forever. It could ruin everything. And, uh, we see smoke billowing up from the fountain, and it's this strong look like looks up, and he has aged a lot. He's got a ton of wrinkles on his face. His eyebrows are white. His little sort of curl of hair at the front uh, is still the, his natural color. But but he's, he has aged a lot, and then out of the woods comes the actual Captain Strong, and the first thing he says is, Pappy? So it was you in that old photo I found. I thought you was dead. I ain't seen you in 40 years. And uh, this, I guess, Pappy Strong says, well, look what the cat drugged in. Hello, sonny boy. And everyone's confused, like, Pappy? Well, okay, so wait a minute. Is that, that is that Captain Strong's dad? And uh, Pappy Strong says, Nah, I weren't dead, you ignorant runt. I just run off to join the crew of that Fantasia scow. And Captain Strong says, But well, why didn't you tell... Why didn't you tells me and ma? <laughs> and he says, "Musta have slipped me mind, you idiot. So Pappy Strong is a pretty bad guy. Uh, not not great. Uh, so basically, Cap- Pappy Strong then tells the tale of Captain Wynne, Uh, dragging his crew in the Fantasia to look for the Fountain of Youth. And this is the part that gets kind of confusing. So we see the witch using a hurricane like she just used on the Fantasia the first time around, and it works. And Pappy Strong says, The captain went down, I made it to shore. So the boat was destroyed, but the restoration was so good and thorough they found all the pieces despite any water damage that was you know caused to them where the marking on that table was still around not right it's a little far fetched but not right so pappy strong makes it to shore and so he's like thinking possibly going to be killed but uh the witch on the island thought he was cute sort of cute And so he's been there ever since, just keeping the fountain to themselves and staying out of trouble. Um, And the witch says, until you ruined everything. And so she says, one last enchantment. I'm plucking the most powerful thing you know out of your memories and using it against you. So she creates a Superman, a fake Superman, like we saw on the cover. And Captain Strong, being the only person out, not tied up, says that he's going to deal with it. And he eats some Sancha, a.k.a. spinach. And he says, your super spirit don't scare me, nun Haggy. He may got super power, but I got Sancha power. And he, then he says, as he punches the super spirit in the chest, he says, of course, even if I didn't have me Sancha power, I'd still win this little scuffle because this phony super swab is fighting on the side of evil. I'm fighting for good, and as me friend, the real Superman would say, in a scrap between good and bad, good always comes out on top. And throughout this sort of little monologue, uh, Captain Strong has been punching. He's been doing a bunch of punches to Superman's stomach or the Super Spirit's stomach. He's gotten punched in the face. Captain Strong has, and then finally, with one powerful glow, glow blow, as he says, "Good always comes out on top." He punches Superman super spirit in the face knocking him out and causing him to evaporate and uh, he goes to take a look at the witch and she has crumbled to dust and Pappy Strong explains that's because she's been drinking out of the fountain for 500 years so P- Pappy Strong just aged 40 years but she aged 500 so that means that she turned to dust because that's what happens typically when you're 500-plus years old. Um, And Clark, as Captain Strong's untying him, says, Guess I'll never know if Captain Strong won his battle because the old Enchantress was dying, or because, as the Captain said, he was fighting for the side of good. Uh, And Captain Strong has no hard feelings towards his father, I guess, because he says, "Um, Well, the fountain's gone, but I did find me pappy. Get your gear, matey. You're coming to Metropolis, so I can teach his... Yeah, how to act like an old geezer. So that's great. Later, we cut back to the Fantasia as it is resuming its journey into the sunset. And Lois and Olivia are talking. And they're talking about uh, Clark and Horatio, who's who's Captain Strong. And Lois says, Imagine Clark Kent saving us from a sea monster and the captain beating a Superman clone in a fistfight. What can you even say about a couple of unpredictable guys like that? And Olivia says, only one thing you can say, Lois. They are what they are. And they all lived happily ever after. Until next time. Which is next issue. It says, Peril. uh, And the L is in a parenthesis. In Paradise. And the second story, The League of Superman Watchers. So I wonder if next issue will also be in sort of the Caribbean of... Lois and Clark's vacation—that'd be cool, but that doesn't go on sale until February twenty-eighth, which means we won't see it for maybe a couple more months. Uh, so that's fun. Uh, and the the second the backup in this Action Comics is about a little girl who uh, all of her friends are showing off their autographs, and she wants to get the she wants to get a Superman autograph, but the Man of Steel doesn't give autographs. Because he's too busy fighting crime, obviously, and she tells all her friends, "Well, yeah, well, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get the autograph of Superman, so you can let me join your autograph club. The autograph hounds is what they're called." And she says, "I'll do it." And they say, "Well, you have a week to do it, uh, and then if you do, you can join the club." And so then that night, she she mails uh, a letter to Superman, but then she falls asleep and she dreams that she is. Supergirl and she saves the day from Lex Luthor and then she uh, gets Superman's autograph that way and then she pretends that she's uh well then she's in class the next day and she's daydreaming about being Lois Lane and uh kind of being a damsel in distress and then after Superman saves her she gets his autograph that way and then she wakes up and the school day is over and Meanwhile, Superman is reading his uh, fan mail uh, and he hears the story of this little girl and I'll just read it verbatim. It says, when I was two years old, a boiler exploded in our house and my parents sacrificed their lives to save mine. I spent months in the Monroe's something uh, orphanage until I was adopted by a kindly couple. I was so happy to have a ma and pa and a real home again. And this sort of tugs at Superman's heartstrings. And he says that he's going to pay Molly a visit. So five days later, uh, time is up for Molly and to get the autograph and her friends are all at her stoop because she's sort of, Dejected because she couldn't get Superman's autograph. Or she hasn't heard back about Superman and his autograph. And they tell her time's up. You can't join the club unfortunately. When suddenly Superman appears on the front lawn. And he gives Molly his autograph. By using his heat vision to engrave the bo- her autograph book. With love from Superman. And then she gets to join the club. And everyone's happy. And, and she gets a big hug from Superman. Who is also an orphan. And that is the end. Um, so yeah, that's that's Action Comics number 566. It's pretty cool, I think. Uh, well, I let's not go that far. It was fine. Uh, it's not really... It's kind of... It feels very Silver Age-y still, which we're still kind of in the Silver Age. We won't really get into sort of the Bronze Age until post-Crisis on Infinite Earths, I think, and then the restarting of characters like Superman uh, with Man of Steel... Uh, so, so this still feels very, very silver agey, and uh, that's because it still kind of is. So let's move on to the next issue. That issue being All Star Squadron number forty four, released January twenty fourth, nineteen eighty five, with a cover date of April nineteen eighty five. And we have a long, 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 long list of debuts in this one. Um, to the podcast, not to reality. Uh, So let's talk about all of those. So first off, we have the All-Star Squadron, which is a very interesting group of heroes. So this, uh, I should say, the All-Star Squadron debuted in Justice League of America number 193 on May 7th, 1981. So they haven't been around for a long time at this point. 44 issues, basically, because they basically then got their own series Of All-Star Squadron. So let's talk about the All-Star Squadron as a group. They are a group of Golden Age heroes and characters um, and their activities in World War II uh, in the 1940s. And so so this series takes place in the 1940s. It is uh, sort of retroactively inserting the storylines from this into the Golden Age Um, It's also inserting characters that are not, were not part of the DC Comics universe at the time, but that was later acquired. Uh, Think of the the characters from uh, uh, Earth X, uh, you know, Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters and and Plastic Man and and stuff like that. Uh, So those those people are also added into the Golden Age through All-Star Squadron, Uh, so that's I think that's pretty cool. Uh, And like I said, that's why we kind of have a very golden age feeling to this crisis episode. So that's that's the team we're going to be dealing with. Now let's talk about the characters. So we have Liberty Bell, uh, who is Libby Bell Lawrence. Uh, She debuted in Boy Commandos number one on November 11th, 1942. And she has uh, sort of metahuman abilities. Uh, I don't know of her origin yet. We'll get to that when we get to Golden Age. Boy Commando's number one. Uh, But she has enhanced speed, strength, stamina, uh, and sonic vibrational pulses. uh, Probably why she's called Liberty Bell. Uh, Next, we have Johnny Quick, otherwise known as Johnny Chambers. He debuted in More Fun Comics number 71 on July 24th, 1941. And as his name indicates, he can move very quick. He can move very fast. He's a sort of analog to the Flash. Uh, So that's that's pretty cool. Next, we have Tarantula, otherwise known as Jonathan Law. He debuted in Star Spangled Comics number one on August 6th, 1941. He's a basic sort of Batman equivalent, I would say. He's acrobat, trained in hand-to-hand combat. Uh, gimmicks and gadgets and stuff, web gun, uh, so pretty standard. Uh, next we have Paul Dennis, alter ego robot man, and no, this is not the robot man from Doom Patrol, that's obviously Cliff Steele, uh, this is a Earth-2 robot man, and he debuted in Star Spangled Comics number 7 on February fourth, 1942. Uh, next we have Jim Harper, who is alter ego guardian, He debuted in Star Spangled Comics number 7 on February 4th, 1942. You'll probably remember him if you watch the Young Justice cartoon as I did. Uh, Next, we have Ted Knight, alter ego starman. We will be seeing him again later on in this episode in the final issue. He debuted in Adventure Comics number 61 on March 5th, 1941. Uh, next we have Phantom Lady, uh, who is Sandra Knight, uh, Ted Knight's cousin, uh, and superhero in her own right. She debuted in Police Comics number one on May 14th, 1941. So Police Comics number one is pretty interesting. Police Comics in general is pretty interesting because it is a comic book made by Quality Comics was a, which was a competitor of, Uh, DC Comics, or I should say, National Periodical Publications, which is now DC Comics, uh, in the 1930s and 40s and and 50s until it it was bought by National Periodical Publications, now DC Comics uh, at that time. And that's where we get characters like Phantom Lady, uh, Plastic Man, the Human Bomb. uh, Basically, a lot of the characters that come from Earth X, and that's why they come from Earth-X because they are from a different comic book universe. It's kind of why Shazam and all of them come from Earth-S until it gets renumbered in in multiversity. So uh, I don't know. That's a good question I should, should ask out loud. But I was just thinking to myself, is Police Comics something that we're going to cover because they eventually come into the DC Comics universe, but they're not at that time I don't think I am. I don't think we are covering things like quality comics comics while they're quality comics comics, just like we're not covering uh, Shazam until Shazam comes into the DC universe. So, okay. So it's important to know that that Phantom Lady comes from Police Comics number one, but we're not going to be meeting her in the Golden Age show when we get to May uh, of 1941. So just remember that. Uh, and finally, we have the Newsboy Legion, Tommy, Big Words, Scrapper, and Gabby, uh, who debuted in Star Spangled Comics number no. seven on February 4th, 1942. So, a lot of characters in this issue were going to meet on the regular show in, I mean, a f- maybe a year, maybe two years. Uh, two years chronologically, but certainly less than two years on the podcast I would hope. Because if it takes us a year to cover a year, that's that's crazy. Uh, but but that's that's all the debuts in this issue, so let's talk about the production side of it. We have uh, plotter Roy Thomas, scripter Paul Kupperberg, penciler Arvel M Jones, inker Pablo Marcos, letterer David Cody Weiss or Vice, and colorist Eugene D'Angelo. D'Angelo getting a lot of work. And that's just fine with me. So let's get into the issue itself. As always, we'll start with the cover. Uh, It's All-Star Squadron at the top. Title, obviously, in a uh, sort of action bubble. It says, what a way to louse up Our Man and Firebrand's first date. Now, we know both of those characters. They've been on the show before, Our Man and Firebrand. The Golden Age, issue by issue, and Firebrand here in Crisis on Crisis on Earths number one. Uh, The rest of the cover has four heroes, Tarantula, Firebrand, Our Man, and Phantom Lady in the forefront, and in the background is a gray-costumed, gray-haired man with big ol' glasses. Like, very 80s-looking glasses, even though this is set in, like, 1942. Uh, So, kind of weird. Um, And then a a sort of woman in silhouette that is kind of the same color as the background. I think the colors might be a bit off because in the actual book, uh, the color surrounding her is more black uh, than this blue that we're seeing that you'll see on the Instagram after I... Post the cover like I always do. So that's, I think that's just like a translation, not a translation, a scanning issue uh, or something with this cover. Uh, but it says All Star Squadron versus Night and Fog. So that's these two villains behind the heroes. So into the actual issue itself, it starts off with a little scene of uh, Jonathan Quick. Jonathan Quick. Wow, that's very formal. Johnny Quick and Liberty Bell rushing through uh, Manhattan. Uh, Johnny Quick is is carrying Liberty Bell, and everyone on the street thinks that they are going somewhere to fight crime or something, but in reality, they are just rushing to catch their train to Philadelphia. Uh, it doesn't say why they're going to Philadelphia, but they are taking a train to Philadelphia in full costume rather than being just their normal, uh, civilian selves. Uh, and that's the last we see of Liberty Bell and Johnny Quick, uh, this issue, so I hope you weren't getting excited to see them, because that's it. Hopefully next issue, it seems like maybe they'll they'll show up. We then cut to, uh, another part of New York, specifically across the bridge in Brooklyn, uh, a member of the News, Newsboy Legion, Uh, Scrapper is fighting in a boxing match, uh, and it turns out that Jim Harper, the Guardian, is his sort of coach and fight, you know, guy, the person who sets up Fight Promoter. That's it. Fight Promoter. Uh, and he has bought, he has brought, uh, Ted Knight, Starman, Shiera Saunders, Hall, uh, Hawkwoman, Carter Hall, and uh robot formerly robot man or currently robot man i don't know how his powers work this is like the first i'm hearing of robot man as a character other than the doom patrol version so i don't know if he turns into a robot man or if he's no longer a robot man and his brain has been placed in a human body but paul dennis is also there and you see the silhouettes of their hero personas behind them as they're talking about the boxing match uh scrapper wins his match, and uh, Jim Harper is very happy for him, as are all the rest of the the newsboys in the Newsboy Legion. Uh, they make a joke about how someday they're going to prove that Jim Harper is the Guardian, even though he, you know, says, no, there's no way, It's it's I'm the Guardian, even though he is the Guardian. Uh, and that's the last we see of that group of heroes. That's why I introduced them by their, uh, the debuts in their civilian... Identities like Paul Dennis, Jim Harper, Ted Knight, because we only see them in their civilian guise rather than in their uh, superhero persona. We then cut to another part of New York, Park Avenue, to be specific. Our man, Rex Tyler, is getting off the elevator to uh, bring flowers to uh, Danette, uh, what is her last name? Riley, uh, who is the firebrand who we met in Crisis on Infinite Earths, number one. And he is wearing his full Hour Man costume because uh, Danette has asked him specifically to wear it. Uh, he doesn't know why. He's not sure. He's confused. Uh, obviously, he doesn't want you know, his actual identity getting out. That's not good. So he's confused. But he uh, knocks on the door and... Firebrand opens the door, but wait a minute, this Firebrand has black hair, and he's like, wait a minute, it's Sandra Knight, Phantom Lady. She's wearing Firebrand's costume. Something weird is going on. Then we see Tarantula, Jonathan Law, and Danette Riley, Firebrand, but she is wearing Phantom Lady's costume, the very revealing yellow and green costume with the, with the glasses, or with the goggles. Uh, and she explains the situation. They are going to a masquerade party at her father's penthouse, and they thought it would be fun to wear each other's costumes. So Danette is wearing uh Sandra's or Sandra's and vice versa, and Jonathan and Rex are going to switch costumes. Um, which I guess is a good way to make sure that you're not ever like tied to your identity in case in, a, in another time you're, you're connected to that superhero identity in some way. So it's, it's, it's also kind of funny. It's like a little trick. So they switch and they go to the party. And this is where the issue starts in earnest. They, they get to the party. There's a bunch of rich people dressed all up in different costumes. We see a cowboy. We see a Groucho Marx, uh, a Frankenstein, a Dracula, all sorts of people. Uh, Statue of Liberty, even. And uh, Danette finds her father, uh, who is Emerald Ed Riley, and she talks to him about this party, uh, introduces all of her friends, and her father seems a little bit off. He seems a bit tense, and she thinks it's maybe just because he's throwing a party, and, and if you've ever thrown a party before, it's it can be quite tense, you want to make sure everybody's having a good time, making sure there's enough snacks, and all that kind of stuff, but also, he's probably thinking about uh, his duty to the war, he is a steel magnate, so his production is very, very important to the war effort uh, in, in Japan and uh, Europe, uh, so so he's probably pretty tense about that, making sure that orders get out on time and all that sort of stuff. Uh, uh, they all begin dancing to the band that's playing there, uh, and it is Frank Sinatra and, and his band. Um, I guess Tom Dorsey. I, I don't know a lot about Frank Sinatra, but Tom Frank Sinatra and Tom Dorsey, and, and they're a big old you know band. Uh, so Jonathan and Sandra are a, a couple and so they're dancing uh as as firebrand and Our man but rex tells danette that he doesn't know how to dance or if she if she doesn't mind her feet getting stepped on they can dance so instead they decide to go find a private place to just sit and chat because this is technically their first date uh so so they head towards the balcony and as they're walking out there Another couple comes out from the balcony, and it is a, a man wearing a gray and black costume and a woman wearing a black costume, I guess, if you want to call it that. I mean, women's costumes are often very sexual in nature or sexualized in nature. She's wearing a, basically a strapless swimsuit, one-piece swimsuit, with gloves that go up to her mid-bicep area, and a very large domino mask on her face. And it's a masquerade, so that's that's kind of what uh, you wear. You wear a mask to cover your identity. But these two don't even, you know, say anything to uh, Rex and Danette. Uh, they kind of give them the cold shoulder. And uh, we then, you know, kind of watch Danette and Rex kind of holding each other out on the balcony, and, and they begin to dance a little bit out there, uh, maybe not even to the, to the actual song that's playing. Uh, everyone's having a great time at the party. Uh, we then cut to Ed Riley, Danette's father, and he is approached by these two figures, the, the man in gray and the woman in black, and they ask to speak to him in private. Or he says, you know, quiet, we must not speak out here. He said, I was expecting you. We'll go to my study. So they go to his study. And after they get into the study, it's revealed through their language that these two are Germans. And at this time in 1942, being German is a persona non grata. Uh, Do not be German in 1942. So they reveal that Ed Riley, he's an Irish American, a very proud Irish American. So he hates the British. Uh, the British and the Irish have had and, I mean, depending on who you ask, still do, have a very contentious relationship. Uh, Northern Ireland is a very touchy subject, uh, Catholicism and Protestantism and the sort of budding of heads there uh, and the way that the British sort of uh, treated the Irish as, as lesser and uh, kind of didn't help them out at all, especially during the uh, potato famine. So, uh, so, Basically, it's revealed that Ed Riley has been restricting his steel production up to this point, prior to the bombing of Pearl Harbor and FDR bringing America into the war. He's been slow as slow as possible to without raising suspicion, because the materials were going to the British and and the Russians. Uh, So by doing that, he's sort of hurting the British uh, against. Uh, the Germans, against the Nazis, and this is prior to, I guess, wide-ranging knowledge of the atrocities that Hitler is uh, doing, depending on who you ask or who who you are. So he didn't know how bad Hitler was, although a man who wants to take over all of Europe seems pretty bad. It feels like he doesn't need to do anything else besides that to be like, well, maybe I shouldn't allow this to happen. So, um, so Ed, Ed Riley's not a very good guy. And they basically say, you better keep restricting your production or we're going to have problems. We get a little interstitial of uh, Rex and Danette talking out on the balcony still and they come back inside where they meet Sandra and Jonathan and they talk about the weird couple that gave them the cold shoulder Um, Sandra and Jonathan say that they saw those two talking with Danette's father and they went into his study. And so they're thinking that something is afoot, so they're going to change back into their actual costumes and uh, do some superheroing. Meanwhile, we see Ed, Riley, and these two figures, who we learned are named, they're named the German words Nacht and Nebel. Uh, And I'm not a German, and I don't speak German, so I might have butchered that. But basically, their names are Night and Fog. The woman's name is Night, and the man's name is Fog. uh, And their powers correlate with that. Uh, Basically, Hitler and his uh, team of evil bad guy scientists used a machine to give these two superpowers. uh, Night and Fog-based superpowers, uh, if you couldn't guess. Uh, So... Uh, the man can create a uh, a sort of numbing, choking mist from his body. I don't know if he can turn into mist as such, but he can create it, which is good for sneak attacks and, and stealth and all that kind of stuff. And she can create night or darkness, and, and that can send the people who get enveloped into it into a nightmare scenario, uh, a lot of dream bending sort of situation. So they are threatening Ed with these powers and and with death. And he says, uh, kill me. I'm not proud of what I've done already. But that was before I learned about your concentration camps, your policies of mass murder. Till this uh, expletive war is over. I'm working for America, whether their ally is Britain or Russia or the devil himself. And this is when Fogg grabs him by the shirt and pushes him out the window but is still holding on to him and Fogg says tonight i told you it was useless to try to reason with him knocked shall i and she says yes drop him and he does and says perhaps his successor will be more cooperative unfortunately i don't think that's true because i doubt dinette would align herself with nazis uh, if she would be the successor, she is a woman. This is 1942. They don't get the respect that they deserve. And so I doubt she would be put in charge of her dad's company. But at that moment, uh, Firebrand, Our Man, Tarantula and Phantom Lady bust in to the study and ask where uh, well, actually don't ask because they see uh, Our Man says Brandy, which they call Danette Brandy. And I don't know if that's one of her names. I'm not a big Firebrand expert. Uh, That's something I probably should have looked up, but I didn't. And he says, did you see they just dropped somebody out the window? And Fog says, Mr. Riley has stepped out for a moment. You will. And then he tells them to return to the party. Firebrand says, like blazes, I will, which is a funny fire pun because her powers are fire based. And she jumps out the window, uh, flamed on, you know, with fire all around her. And she flies down to her father or chases her father down. Uh, as he is uh, falling to the to the ground. Uh, meanwhile, Our Man, Tarantula, and Phantom Lady attempt to fight these two uh, bad guys. Uh, Our Man at this time, I should say, is not using Miraclo, because, spoiler alert, he uh, develops an addiction uh, and, and side effects from it. Uh, so for his health, he doesn't. So he is just a regular guy in a costume at this point. Uh, he has a he has a ray he develops that will give him the same powers, but I don't know if he has it at this time or if he has used it for the party. It would be silly to use it for a party. He didn't expect to be superheroing, so he's just a regular guy, and him and Tarantula, who's also just a regular guy, are attempting to fight uh, Fog, but I guess he can turn into, now that I see, I guess he can turn into Mist itself or Fog itself because his fist kind of comes out of nowhere. And so they're having a tough time. Uh, Phantom Lady, who has a black light ray, uh, which is going to blind uh, Night, but unfortunately Knight is immune because you can't blind Night with her own darkness. So Phantom Lady is not having a great time, and uh, Tarantula gets in a few good licks on Fog, but eventually Knight gets a hold of him and sort of knocks him out with her darkness powers. Meanwhile uh, Firebrand has grabbed her father, and is attempting to fly up, but she passes out on a ledge with her father, and, uh, it's not looking great for these four heroes, I mean, I will say, not a, not a ton of heavy hitters, really the only heavy hitter is Firebrand, she's the only one with real quote-unquote powers, so that's not looking good, and in an emergency like this, Our Man does have a break glass in case of emergency, miracle pill, and so he takes it, uh, even though he swore he'd never take another one. Uh, this is a this is a life or death situation; it needs to be done. So he takes it, and after he takes it, Fog grabs Phantom Lady, l- lifts her over his head, and throws her out the window. Uh, our man jumps up; his his miracle has not taken effect yet. It takes a little bit of time, and grabs her by the ankle. And is holding onto her out the window while fog and night sort of taunt him, uh, and are going to—I mean—beat him up uh, or kill him, one of the two, as he's holding on to Phantom Lady's uh, leg. When finally the miracle pill takes effect, and you can see it—it's in three side-by-side panels. Our man is looking very scared because he knows what's about to happen. He says, "God knows, I tried for the 80th." Oh, for the 80th, for the both of us. And then he says, I, and then his thoughts sort of stops. And he says, hello, uh, because if you are a listener of the Golden Age uh, podcast, you know that our man's Miracle doesn't just give him enhanced speed and strength. It also gives him en- enhanced, I guess I would say, will, courage. So he's now he's braver and more confident. So he uh, hoists Phantom Lady up uh, back through the window and, Throws uh, bricks at Fog, sort of knocking him out. And then he looks out the window and sees uh, Danette uh, uh, passed out, laying on uh, her father, who is presumably also passed out. And he, or dead. Uh, our man assumes that they're dead because he yells at night, You've killed them. She says, But of course, mynheer, in fulfillment of our mission, and since you have seen fit to interfere with the iron will, uh, hit Hitler and the Nazis. Uh, the sacred task intu- entrusted to us by our Führer. Uh, your demise has become a priority as well. So, and then she envelops him in her darkness, and our man goes through this sort of nightmare-esque uh, dreamscape, uh, and he's so he's not having a great time. At this point, Danette wakes up and uh, tries to wake up her father, and he sort of comes to, and he and he says. Dinette. She says, yes, it's me. You, you're going to be all right. Do you hear me? I'll get you help. And he says, no, sweetheart. Too late for that. And she says, just lie still and I'll. And he says, no, listen, Dinette. You should know. I worked with them. Nazis. And she says, no, you didn't. You couldn't. And he says that he hated the British uh, too much to, to see that the Nazis were even worse. And then he basically, you know, gasps his last gasp. And uh, well, first he says, Don't let them win, darling. I don't want my life's work in their hands. Promise me, Danette. Promise me. And then his last gasp of life escapes him and he dies, which is sad. Very, very sad. Meanwhile, Our Man is still trying to deal with. Uh Knight's abilities, he is sort of uh, trapped in his own mind, and Fog is going to come and basically fill up his lungs with this terrible Fog that he can create, which will kill him, uh, depriving his body of oxygen and suffocating him. But before he can, Firebrand comes up and she she's angry, she's mad, her dad just died. So, she uh flame blasts Fog, and then she sort of gets a little bit heated because her ability is the uh, total control over any flames in the vicinity. So there's candles in the room or or something. And so she sort of sets the entire room on fire and uh, she kind of gets a little bit uh, over emotional, which is fair. Her her father just died and phantom lady and tarantula have to sort of talk her down uh, because otherwise she'll just burn down the entire building Uh, And while this is happening, Night and Fog, unfortunately, escape. Uh, But uh, Danette calms down and sort of settles the flames down in the room. And our man, you know, comes to, but he's not looking good because of the miracle pill And so they they get everybody out of the building. Uh, And later, they're waiting down at street level for the ambulance to bring down, uh, Danette's father's body. And, uh, we see a body being carried by two ambulance workers covered. Uh, and, uh, Danette explains to a police officer, um, what happened and why. Uh, and so she, she covers up the fact that her father inadvertently, assisted the Nazis by not producing as fast as possible. She says, It's simple. Riley was a steel magnate, and our war industries run on steel, armor bullets, even ball bearings. Ed Riley was one of the men who will make it possible for FDR... Oh, not for FDR. For us to beat the Axis one of these fine days. But the rest will have to carry on the fight without him. Uh, And at this point, she begins to cry, and she... She brushes it off as the rain to this police officer as to not, you know, be suspicious. And that is the end. And uh, the sort of blurb for the next issue, it says, ask not for whom the Liberty Bell tolls. It tolls for Baron Blitzkrieg and friends. So uh, Baron Blitzkrieg, is going to be in the next issue which we'll get to like uh like so many others in like a couple months but that is all-star squadron number 44 i think it's kind of cool i think it's a cool idea and i'm wondering if it's something that dc has thought about bringing back because I, i as as i mean anyone who's plugged into the scene at the moment knows uh wesley dodds jay garrick alan scott they're all getting you know mini series if not ongoing series uh as part of dawn of dc so i mean if that goes well an all-star squadron sort of 1940s based hero team could be in the works that'd be pretty cool um i mean we here at issue by issue are big fans of the golden age so uh any any modern golden age stuff is cool and this all-star squadron is a good idea for a series of comics uh but let's move on to the next and final issue America versus The Justice Society, number four, released January 24th, 1985, cover date April 1985. Now, this is a miniseries, four issues. This is the final issue of the miniseries. So, uh, if you want to read it, it's a lot of rehashing of the Justice Society of America's adventures from the 1940s in the sort of lens of batman who has recently died left a diary claiming that they've been working they were working for hitler the entire time and so it's them trying to clear their name it's a lot of it's a lot of uh congressional hearing it's basically one long congressional hearing so if you're not into characters talking and you're more into action it's definitely not for you but if you like you know courtroom drama or you know congressional meetings i guess then it'd be up your alley or if you just want to you know a a quick rehash of of the golden age uh justice society's adventures uh, i think it'd be something to check out and if that's the case i would skip the rest of this podcast because it is the final issue that we're covering and it will spoil the ending of this mini-series but if you're sticking with us for the rest of this episode let's talk about the issue Um, We have debuts in this one, uh, which is it's funny that a lot of these characters are debuting in this in this episode, because a lot of them are like primo Golden Age characters that we will get to sooner or later in Golden Age crisis or Golden Age issue by issue. But uh, they came up more recently on this one. So that's funny. It happens. It happens quite a bit, actually. So First off is the Justice Society of America. It de- debuting in All Star Comics number three on November twenty second, nineteen forty. We are uh, a handful of episodes away from that issue on the Golden Age show, so you you can all experience that uh, relatively soon. Uh, we have Adam Al Pratt. He debuts in All American Comics number nineteen on August twentieth, nineteen forty. So. That's coming up very soon. We've just had All-American Comics number 16, so we're only uh, three away from that. We have Dr. Midnight, Dr. Charles McNitter, uh, who debuted in All-American Comics number 25, February eighteenth, 1941. We have the original Huntress, Helena Wayne, uh, the parents of Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle, which I should now mention, this is taking place on Earth 2, where the Justice Society exists. Uh, So it's the older version of characters like Superman, Wonder Woman, and they look old. Believe me, they look old. Uh, uh, Helena Wayne Huntress debuted in All-Star Comics number 69 on August 23rd, 1977. We have Power Girl, Karen Starr, who debuted in All-Star Comics number 58 on October 9th, 1975. We have Wildcat, Ted Grant who debuted in Sensation Comics number one, the same issue as Earth 2 version of Wonder Woman and Wonder Woman in general, uh, on November 7th, 1941. We have Perdegaton, who debuted in All-Star Comics number 35, uh, April 25th, 1947, so he's been around as a villain for a very long time. Uh, We have Obsidian, Todd Rice, who is the son of Alan Scott, twin brother of Jade, who we met... Uh, A couple episodes ago, uh, a part of Infinity Incorporated, he debuted in All-Star Squadron number 25, June 23rd, 1983. Two more, two more, and then we're done with debuts. Star-Spangled Kid, uh, Sylvester Pemberton Jr., who debuted in Star-Spangled Comics number one on August 6th, 1941. And finally, Northwind, who was that character I did not know in the sort of Infinity Incorporated full team portrait um his name is Norda Cantrell he is a feather featherin human hybrid he is part of like a secret race of humanoids that live on earth or something that Hawkman eventually sort of like adopts or pseudo adopts and he's on infinity incorporated as well he debuted in all-star squadron number 25 on june 23rd 1983 oh my gosh that is a lot of debuts there's been a ton of podcast debuts in this episode uh, so let's get to the production side of this issue uh, it is written by roy thomas uh plotted Uh, or assistant plotted, co plotted by uh, Danette Thomas, penciled by Howard Bender, inked by Alfredo P. Alcala, sorry, lettered by David Cody Weiss or Vice, and colored by Carl Gafford. Uh, So let's get into the issue itself. Starting, as always, with the cover, and the cover has uh, America vs. the Justice Society, D-Day for Degaton, per Degaton, and it has Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, Dr. Fate, and Hawkman holding a large hourglass with uh, per Degaton in it and a bunch of different technology from different periods in time. It then rehashes the last scene uh, of the last issue of issue three where Predegatan has revealed that he has been paying attention to these hearings and he has a plan uh, as a part of them to to take over the world as he's tried many, 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 many times before. Three times before, in fact, uh, using time travel. We then hear uh, back in the committee hearing room about several of the cases in the latter half or latter portion of the Justice Society. We hear about their fight with the alchemist, uh, with a, a uh, Auricon, who is a, a giant robot or something in a gold universe or golden universe. Uh, we hear about uh, the evil star over Hollywood uh, adventure and the Justice Society... Uh, is explaining all their history and as a way to prove that they're not Nazis. Uh, having read this entire miniseries, I don't really see how this proves anything. They're just saying stuff. Uh, they could have been Nazis the whole time. I don't know. It's a it's a very weird miniseries. Uh, having read the entire thing, uh, it's a it's a f- nice rehashing of the Justice Society's history. Uh, sort of bring people in 1985 up to speed, but it's really really weird and. Um, kind of convoluted. You know what? I don't normally do this, but I don't know if I'm actually going to re or summarize this issue. I think it's so ingrained in the other three issues, having, having read all of them, that I think that you as the listener would be more lost uh, than... Not lost in my retelling it, so I just don't think it's a valuable use of time. Uh, unless I want this episode to be multiple hours long in re- retelling the entirety of the miniseries, so that it makes sense to everybody. It's a it's a miniseries with a lot of talking and explanations of past Justice Society events. And having read this final issue, it makes sense to me because I've read the three before it, but you haven't. You don't know what's been going on, and it would take too long for me to actually explain it all. So I don't normally do this, and I feel weird doing it, especially because I talked up, you know, all the Golden Age stuff going on at the beginning of the episode. But it just doesn't actually make any sense for me to do this. I really probably shouldn't have done it anyways. It's a mini series. And mini series, depending on what they are, are weird, Uh, especially this one uh, after finishing it. So unfortunately, I'm not actually going to continue. And that feels weird. And it probably feels weird to you, the listener, you probably feel gypped, and you're probably gonna be mad at me. But I do think it would just be like 30 minutes of me reading people's statements and you're still kind of confused about what's going on because even for me, the ending kind of came out of not nowhere but I didn't see the signs or the clues or anything to it so I doubt you're going to with just the last issue. So I'm gonna stop <laughs> I'm gonna stop explaining why I'm not gonna continue and I'm just gonna I'm not gonna continue so, Feels weird, but I guess that'll do it for us this week. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, as usual, check out the socials there in the show notes. Uh, be back here Monday for a, a kind of a big, a big deal uh, in terms of uh, comic books—the uh, start of something pretty exciting, uh, Justice Society related, you know. Um, but uh, until then, uh, I'm your host, Nick Byers. I'll see you around.